Well, it's birthday season in my house. Yeah, yay, yeah. Uh, one of my kids had a birthday this week. We celebrated it. We had people over and played in the backyard. This morning is my sister, well, all day is my sister's birthday. And uh, we'll, we'll certainly be talking to her this afternoon. And when, when birthdays come, like a lot of times we all kind of struggle. We say, well, what do I get this person for their birthday? You know, that I already got them that last year. I already said that. And so you just can't quite figure it out. Uh, what have you ever gotten your boss for their birthday? Uh, maybe you think that you should. Maybe you think it would, it would put you in the good graces of your boss. Maybe you've worked with them for a long time and you just really love working for this person and so you want to be able to help them out. Uh, you want to be able to really show off to be able to take care of them on their birthday. Well, that's the story behind a 64-year-old Frenchman. On his birthday, his office staff got together, and this happened about a year ago, and it kind of got buried in the headlines of everything else that was going on in the world. But his office staff, uh, they got together, and they bought him a passenger trip on a fighter jet for his birthday pretty good group of guys, if you ask me. So they, 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 they buy him, uh, they pay for him, and, and the backstory is that he was a guy who was a paper pusher. He worked behind the scenes with government contracts. Uh, he had always worked at a desk. He had always been around the military, but he had never been, you know, up close and personal, certainly up close and personal with a fighter jet. And so there in France, uh, they had paid for him to go for a ride to sit in the, the second seat in a fighter jet called an Assault Raphael. And so he's getting into the assault Raphael. And this two-seater, he's sitting right behind the pilot, 18 inches between his nose and the back of the seat uh, in front of him. And as he is inside of this jet, they, they are taking his vitals. They're monitoring him to make sure that he's doing okay. And as they're monitoring him, the jet hasn't even been started. He's sitting there. This paper pusher, pusher executive has a heart rate between 140 and 160 as, as he's just sitting in the plane. Uh, and you and I would be doing the same thing. I mean, we're going to laugh at this guy because we can, but uh, his name isn't even given in the article, so we can't really slander him in any way. We just got to know uh, he's sitting there, and he is freaking out. But they, they check, and he's okay. They're going to make sure everything's all right. They get the thumbs up, and the plane fires up, and the plane takes off. And it races down the runway, and it takes off, and immediately goes off the end of the ramp, and it goes up into the sky, and goes almost straight up into the sky. And according to the article, uh, he is now receiving 3.7 Gs of force on his body. Now, I don't know a whole lot about how that works, but the understanding is uh, gravity is 3.7 times what you and I would normally be feeling when we're sitting or standing here in this room. The pressure is 3.7 times that up against him. Now, if you've been on a roller coaster and you begin to go up the thing and you go down the first step, every once in a while, because you feel some G's in that as well, uh, you'll start to go over the top or you start to come through that first circle and you realize that your restraint isn't as tight as you would have hoped it to be. You ever been there before? You go, I think there's too much play here. I think there should be one inch and there's three inches. And you're going, oh my goodness. And as you come over that hill and you start to go into that first loop, you start realizing this could be it. This could be it. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, 
So this is exactly what happens to this man as the, as the jet begins to take off and he gets to accelerate to 350 miles an hour. As he is going up, he starts to freak out because he gets this, uh, he starts to feel like he's floating in his seat as he goes up and he thinks that maybe his stuff is not attached tight enough and so he grabs a hold of the walls, the side of uh, the jet and as he does so, he grabs a hold of the handle to the ejection seat. Our executive friend all of a sudden has a happy birthday party of one in the sky. Oh my goodness. Now, the story has a happy ending. <laughs> His parachute deployed, and according to the ar article, he had a relatively soft landing in the field nearby. I'm not sure exactly whether you and I would agree with what a relatively soft landing might be. But one minute, he's this executive, he's in the plane, he's afraid, but he's inside of the plane where he is safe. And one second later, he is all alone. And for many of you, over the last year, over the last 12 months, maybe the last 12 hours, 12 minutes, you have suddenly felt like someone has pulled the ejection seat and you are sitting here all alone. Because that's the feeling that goes through all of us from time to time. And so if you are in that space this morning, or if you've been in that space recently, or you feel like it could be coming, I want you to hear this morning that God's Word has something to say about that feeling. So today we're going to look at the life of of David. My name is Pastor Milo. If I haven't been able to introduce myself to you yet, if you're watching from home this morning, we are week number 12 in a sermon series about the life of David. And as we looked at him as a young man, we saw that he is the most courageous young man in all of Scripture. And then as the king of Israel, he is the most celebrated king still in all of Israel's history. And he is the one man that has been given the title that we're all familiar with, but the special title to be able to say he is a man after God's own heart. What we're going to look at this morning is much like the executive on the plane, we're going to suddenly find David all alone. Now, he may not have actually been physically alone because that's sometimes how this works, isn't it? Because sometimes there can be hundreds or thousands of people around you and you still feel like you are all alone. So our primary text today, if you're using the Bibles there in front of you, or using a digital device, if you're watching from home, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. But before you go there, I want you to find your way to Psalm 142. Because the 2 Samuel carries through the narrative of here's what David did and then here's where he went. Here's what he came up against and here's how he responded to it. But when we look at the Psalms, we get to see here's where David's diary is. Here's where his heart is. Here was he, he was thinking and here's where his heart went so that he was thinking something different later. We see him move back and forth there. So in the New International Version this morning, we're going to start right here in Psalm 142. And you can even start and look at the title with me. Psalm 142, a mascal of David when he was in the cave of prayer. Now what on earth is a mascal? Uh, Hebrews don't actually know. The guys who are studying this stuff, when they look at it, they're not 100% sure. But most people think that mascal is a, is a term for the musical uh, genre that this was to be uh, shared in. There's multiple mascals throughout the book of Psalms. So it's like this is a certain genre <coughs> of song or a certain genre 
of poetry, but it is designed to be shared congregationally, to be able to be shared with all of the people. So it's perfect for us to be looking at this this morning. You see, it's a masculine of David when he was in the cave, when he was all alone. This was the prayer that he prayed. So let's look at it further. Verse 1, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift my voice up to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I will tell my trouble. When my spirit goes faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me or a trap for me. Look and see, there is no one on my right hand. There is no one who is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one even cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So you see this change that is happening within the poetry, within his diary here, where he is starting out and where he finishes. He's praying to the Lord. He says, you are my refuge. You are my strength. You will protect me. But he also feels very much like there is no one around him. There is no refuge. I have no one. No one cares for my life. This is not true, of course. Just like it's not true when you and I feel that in our own lives. When you and I are in that moment, in that place of absolutely feeling alone. And what David needs most of all is a friend someone to come around him, someone to answer the prayer that he has actually prayed before the Lord. Set me free, then the righteous would gather about me because of your goodness to me. And that's exactly what we're going to see. Will you turn your Bibles over now to 2 Samuel 23? We're going to learn something about the people who come around him, his mighty men, his great friends. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is that great friends will know when no one else Knows. Great friends will know what no one else knows. Look at verse 13 of chapter 23. During the harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David where? At the cave. He is writing this poetry. He is writing in his diary saying, God, I need rescue. I need help. Is there any righteous who would come around me? And nobody knows. There, there could be hundreds of people gathered there in the cave around him, but none of them realize what he's going through. None of them realize what he's writing in his personal diary, but these people know because great friends know what no one else knows. He's there in the cave of Adjulam while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And at that time, David was in the stronghold, and at the Philistine garrison, they were over in Bethlehem. Great friends will know what no one else knows knows. See, great friends can look you in the eye, and you are telling everyone else in the room that you are fine. You're telling everyone else in the room that you've got it under control. They look you in the eye. Your spouse will look you in the eye. They will look you in the eye, and they know there's something else happening there that no one else knows. They listen when you need to talk. Great friends will call you when you didn't ask them to call you. They will show up on your front doorstep when you definitely didn't ask them to show up on your front doorstep because they know something that no one else knows. And his friends, his mighty men, his chief warriors show up at the cave. Even though David, it said, David was in a stronghold. He was in a safe space. He was being protected where he was at. But he needed to be able to spend time with them, to see them. Because great friends know what no one else 
knows. Well, who are these great men? Let's go back for a second and look. Verse 8. These are the king's men. These are the guys who are joining and coming around him. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Now, we're going to try these names, but we're going to definitely screw them up. Yosheb Bethshebeth, Tachamanite, was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he had killed in one encounter. This is a guy you want to come and check on you when things are not going so well, right? 800 men. He just took care of the problem. 800 men, it says, whom he killed in one single encounter. Verse 9, next to him was Eliezer, the son of Doadai, the Ahohite. And some of the three, one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David, and they did this. They taunted the Philistines. They were gathered at Pasadamon for battle. And the Israelites retreated. They all turned and ran when the Philistines showed up. But not Eliezer. Eliezer, it says, stood his ground and struck down the Philistines until his hand grew so tired that it stayed clenched to the sword. It froze to the sword. But the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Over in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, we also get this extra little tidbit of information. It says he was in the middle of a barley field. It's a weird kind of detail to get, but let's look at it in a second as to why. Because next to him, verse 11, was Shema, the son of Agi, the Heretite, when the Philistines banded together to place, and they were in a field full of lentils. Israel's troops fled from them, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, and he struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought to him a great victory. So we get this little detail about the harvest season. And first there's this battle, the battle where Eliezer stands his ground in the middle of a barley field. And then secondly, we see that Shema, he stayed in the middle of a field and he held down the lentil field. That's kind of weird, right? Kind of, why would you get that detail? Well, the enemies during this time period were very intentional about attacking during the harvest. Because not only could you take out your enemy, you could also wipe out their food supply. If you attack the enemy at the harvest, you wipe out their food supply, and there's very little chance that they're going to survive the winter to be able to come back and fight against you another day in the springtime when the kings go out to war. And so this was an intentional thing that the Philistines were doing, and it was uh, very important that the Israelites stand their ground and hold it. But we get this example of three different men who are willing to fight off the Philistines, fight off the enemy for the sake of Israel, even though everyone else backed off. These are some pretty important guys to have in your inner circle willing to fight for you. Let's look at another one. I jump over a few verses to verse 20. A very interesting person, his name is Benaniah, the son of Jehadiah, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. In some of your translations, you might see the word uh, to Ariel, or in other translations, it says the word lion-like men. This word is one that they're, they're not even sure how to translate it correctly, but just to say these two men were warriors, they were fighters, and these two men could take out anyone, but Benaiah was able to be victorious over them. And then you get this little tiny stretch, this one verse, it's obscure and incredible all at the same time. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's incredible. Wait a minute, are you telling me, so, so think about it. How many times in scripture actually do you hear or read or see a narrative about snow at all? Not very often. I don't think that it snows very often in Scripture for us to kind of keep track of. Now here we live in an environment in western New York where we are familiar with 
snow. This is an area, this is a region, if you're watching from somewhere else in the world, we have winter, 4th of July, and winter. Okay, so this is an area that we know and we understand snow. But still, even with all of that, the first day of snow, every year, we all get in our cars. We haven't seen snow for 364 days. Uh, excuse me, it's been one day. And so the next time that we go, we go to drive out in the snow, and we're all over the place, as if we'd never seen it before. Now, go out and run around in the snow and decide that you're going to fight a lion. And then decide that you're going to go out and fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day. It's unbelievable. This is Benaiah. And it says here, not that he tripped and fell into a hole and all of a sudden met a lion there. It says, no, he went down into the pit. He went there looking for a fight. So if you're the camera crew trying to capture this moment, you're bringing your camera and you set it in the perimeter and you see two sets of footprints going down into the pit and one set of footprints coming out. Now if you were wagering on that fight, which set of footprints would you expect to be shaped like? You would not expect a man's footprints to be coming out of that pit. It says he went down into the pit on a snowy day and he kills a lion. These are the men that come and support David. These are all the king's men. And they're coming around him because great friends know what no one else knows. Secondly, great friends will do what no one else will do. Great friends will do what no one else will do. Let's look at verse 15 in the same passage. David longed for water. He's there, he's thirsty, he's in the cave, and he said, oh, said that someone would get me, or he's remembering. Remember the days if we had water from that well over at the gate of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where the Philistines are. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines. They drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and then they carried it back to David. Do you remember in gym class when you played the game where you had a sponge and a bucket of water, and you ran the relay race back and forth, and you pick up the sponge, and you squeeze it out in the bucket, and you run back and forth, back and forth, and the team that wins is the team who fills up the bucket to the lines. Everyone remember doing this in gym class. Now put an entire Philistine garrison between you and the other bucket. Now, even worse, get the other bucket and pick it up and carry it and try to fight through the enemy without spilling your bucket of water. These three men do something incredible for David's sake because great friends will do what no one else will do. They return back to David, verse 16, but he refused to drink it. Are you kidding me? Did you see what these guys just went through? Were you there? Did you notice? Did you see the enemy that we just went through? Did you see the Philistines were camped in Bethlehem? We went to Bethlehem. We went to the well. We drank the water from the well. We filled up the buckets. We brought it back to you. And he says, no, I'm I'm good. He refused to drink it. Instead, he did what? He pours it out before the Lord. Verse 17 says, far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is this not the lifeblood of the men who went and risked their lives for me? And David would not drink it. David looks at what they have done. 
They have, they have offered their lives in many ways as a sacrifice for him. They could have died there on the field. And he said, this, this water is like the lifeblood running through their veins. And it, and it shows me how much, how, how much that I mean to them and I'm not worthy of that. He says, so much so, I'm not worthy of that. There's only one who is worthy of that, and that is God himself. And so therefore, I'm going to take this water. I'm going to pour it on the ground as an offering before God. Because he is the one who is worthy. David feels so unworthy, but still so loved. Because great friends will do what no one else will do. Are you tracking with me so far? So, so, so far... Everything that I've shared with you is pretty exciting. It's pretty fun. You would agree with me across the board that this is what great friendships look like. And I could be sharing this with you in just about any environment. I could come to your workplace and share this message. I could come uh, to some type of motivational conference and share uh, this message. I could come to the local high school and tell people to be good friends, to be able to do what other friends are unwilling to do. Uh, But at the end of the day, there would be something missing. We would miss something because I wouldn't be going far enough. I could go across the street at the Unitarian Church and speak this message there, and everyone would agree with everything that I have to say until I say what I'm about to say. That even the greatest friends will always and will still fail you. Even the greatest friends that you have, even you being the greatest friend that you know how to be, that you are looking at someone and you are knowing what no one else knows and you are doing the things that no one else could do and you are pouring yourself fully into this relationship or someone is pouring themselves into you, you are being the best friend that you know how to be, you still will fail. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because here's what happens. You see, 2 Samuel 23 in most of your Bibles has a headline that says these are David's mighty men or David's warriors. Verse 8 begins this way. It says, these are the names of David's mighty warriors. And then it tells the story that I've been sharing. And then it lists all the names. Go down to verse 39, however. And the name that's listed is Uriah the Hittite. These are the 37 in all. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's closest, dearest, mighty men. And David fails him. David goes and sleeps with his wife. And then to cover everything up, David has him murdered on the front lines. He, he pulls the enemy back, and, and Uriah the Hittite is killed. Because even the greatest friendships, even you being the best friend that you know how to be, you still will fail. David, the man after God's own heart, still fails Uriah the Hittite. So now if I'm sharing this message at the local high school, if I'm sharing it across the street, I close it up and I walk off the stage. (laughs) Now what? Now what? It leaves us grasping at straws. It leaves us saying, well, what am I supposed to do then? If in my best intentions, if the guy who has all the resources available to him and has the best possible men around him still failed, what am I supposed to do? 
Well, we need to look at not only the Old Testament, now we're going to have to look at the New Testament. Because the Old Testament gives us a foreshadowing, a picture of what should be, but is never going to happen. And then the New Testament gives us a picture of what has been realized in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you turn to John chapter 11? John chapter 11, beginning in verse 54. The first word you're going to see is the word, therefore. If you've been looking at Scripture for any length of time, you always want to see. If you see the word therefore, what is it therefore? And so we're not going to get into it this morning, but the word therefore comes immediately after the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was in the grave. He was dead. His body stinketh, is what the King James Version says. He's been dead for a while. And Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out in his grave clothes for all to see. That's what's just happened. And now the crowds, after they realize that this Jesus, not only is he a miracle worker, not is he a guy who's, who's doing some cool tricks, but he just raised someone from the dead. That means that he might actually be the Messiah, the one that they're waiting for. So therefore, Jesus no longer was able to move publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. We saw David in a cave, pulled back, hiding, uh, because people were looking for him. Jesus is doing something very similar here. Because they are coming after him, they are looking for him. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead, would going to, uh, they, they were after him. They wanted to kill him and kill Lazarus. Verse 55. So now he's hiding back. And it says, when, he was, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, we live in a very Jewish community around here, and so Passover began yesterday. There's many people who are celebrating that. Many people went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they began to ask one another, what do you think? Is he going to come to the festival even at all? Verse 57, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given order that anyone who found out where Jesus was was to report it so that they might immediately arrest him. Jesus is lying low. He's there, he's, he's hiding out in this area of Ephraim. And as he is there, he's gathering his close friends around him, his circle of friends, his great friends. We call them his disciples. But the reality is there's nothing that great about any of his disciples. There's nothing spectacular about any of them whatsoever. In fact, the only thing, the only thing encouraging about any one of them is the fact that they had been with Jesus. That's it. That's all they have going for them. And he gathers this inner circle around and they come much like the people came around David there in the cave and they come and surround him and circle around him go on to chapter 12 verse 1 six days before the Passover Jesus came to Bethany right where Lazarus had lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead there it is again the author is reminding us of why Jesus is under all this pressure remembering who he is verse 2 here was a dinner given in Jesus's honor Martha served while Lazarus was among them Lazarus is there you can go see him you can talk to him Lazarus is alive the one who is dead is alive the author is reminding us again he was among those who were reclining at the table with him then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so there he is. He's got his inner circle around him. They are caring for him. They are ministering to him because they are the great friends uh, that he desires so much. And then verse 4 happens. 
one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And we get the commentary from the author. He says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas Iscariot was going to fail Jesus. This great friend was going to fail him. Friends, we need to be reminded when we look at this passage, when we look at Judas Iscariot particularly, he wasn't someone who just kind of wandered into the room. We need, we need to be aware of that. Jesus selected Judas just like he selected James and Peter and John. He, he brought Judas into his inner circle, and Judas failed him. You need to be reminded, friends, that you and I, if we had been invited into the inner circle with Jesus, that you and I just as well could be the ones who failed Jesus during this time. Because even the greatest friends, because of our sin nature, will still fail you. Even the greatest friends will still fail you. Let's continue on. Verse 12, the next day the great crowd that had come to the festival had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They're ecstatic. They're excited. They're there. Thousands of them gathering in the streets, praising God, worshiping, saying, Hosanna, he's the one. He's the king that we've been waiting for. And they're all gathering. And who is the king that he's reminding them of? It's David. And he's here. He's here. You hear them chanting, Jesus, we are with you. We are with you. We are with you. And as you know, before the week's end, the same crowd will be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And it's not just the crowds. It's his inner circle. Peter will deny him outright three times in one evening. Because even the greatest friends will still fail you. So we're still grasping at straws. What are we supposed to do? You will never have a better friend than a friend who points you to Jesus. You will never have a better friend than a friend who points you to Christ. Look at verse 20, same, same passage. Now there was Greeks among them who were there to worship at the festival. Now this is a Jewish festival. There's Greeks who were there in the crowd. They come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with this request. They said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip does what any great friend would do. He goes and he gets Andrew, and Andrew does what a good friend should do. Andrew and Philip, in turn, they went and they told Jesus. They went to Jesus and said, there's these people. They want to be able to see you. They want to be able to know what's going on. They want to be able to, to realize what you are up to. You will never have a better friend than a friend who will point you to Christ. And particularly Andrew, we see this again and again and again in Scripture. And so they come to Jesus, and how does he respond to them? Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So what he is telling them is that he is going to be broken for them. And because the seed is broken, now it's going to be able to minister and care for and reach out not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles as well. Verse 27 
He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. He said, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, may I glorify your name. Verse 31. So now will be the time for judgment on this world. Now there would be a reckoning for sin, for all the times that we have failed one another. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show them what kind of death he was going to die. You'll never have a better friend than a friend who will point you to Christ. And this is why. Because you will fail your friend. But Christ will not. You see, all over the place, certainly for the last 20, uh, 25 years, uh, and then in the last two, three months, that we, we've got Christian leaders and Christian uh, who, have, who have walked before us, who are failing us, friends. And when that happens, what are you going to do? See, it's my heart's desire. I would hope that any uh, blunder in my life, any sin in my life is in my past. It is behind me. It has been set behind me. But if it's in my future, if I walk forward and I stumble and I make an absolute fool of myself and of my life, the important thing you need to hear from me is that I am pointing you to Christ because I will fail you. You'll never have a better friend than a friend who points you to Christ. Because Jesus is greater. Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus was a common name, but Christ was a name that was specific to him because he is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the greater David. When we look at this passage, David ached for something that he once had, that drink from the well, but there was no ability in his own right to restore and get that for himself. Jesus, however, steps down from glory, and he goes out to the battlefield himself to set wrong things right. David longed to satisfy his own thirst, but Jesus himself was poured out to satisfy the spiritual thirst of all those who would come to him. Jesus Christ is the greater David. Jesus Christ is the greater friend. His friends went and they fought against the Philistines, risking personal harm on themselves, risking the loss of life. But Jesus went into the enemy territory knowing full well, as he just stated, that he would be killed for it. There was no question for him. They overcame their enemy with sheer force. These were mighty men. They were warriors. They were battlers. But Jesus, he defeats the enemy, not through strength, but through weakness. Jesus Christ is the greater well. The well that David was looking for was a sentimental memory that he thought could bring satisfaction for him in a moment when he was thirsty. But Jesus, he is the true well that our souls will remember and that he alone will satisfy as he tells us in John 4 and tells the woman at the well, the living water that will never run dry. Jesus Christ is the greater water. The water that they fought for, the water that they went through the battle for and brought it back to David, David pours it on the ground and that water is not used. Jesus, however, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and life-giving water that he gives, he gives to all the redeemed, all the Christ followers who will come after and they will all be able to drink. It will be used. Water represents uh, the true dedication that, that David's followers had to him. They fought through the enemy and brought the water back to him to show him how much they loved and how much they cared for their king. Jesus, the true king, 
pours himself out, pours his actual life blood out to satisfy the thirst of his would-be followers, and not only his followers, but his enemies as well. Jesus Christ is greater. And verse 39 says this. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. To go back to the analogy at the beginning, Jesus intentionally reaches over and pulls the ejection seat himself. He says, from this point on, I'm going to have to go alone because I'm the only one who is able to take on the sins of the whole world. You will have, never have a better friend than one will point you to Jesus because Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to take on the sins of the whole world. To pull the ejection seat and say, I'm going to take this one. I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. That's the type of friend that I am. He tells his disciples in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater man has no one than this, than one who would lay down his life for one's friends. As the band comes this morning, you and I want to be a friend, desire to be a friend who knows what no one else knows. We want that. We desire that. We want to be there for someone. We want someone else to be that for us. That they know what no one else knows and they care for us because of it. We want to be the type of friend uh, who, who will do what no one else will do. To be able to respond in a way that no one else would even know how to respond. But we're, we're there. We're doing it. And we want to be known for that. And we want someone to care for us in the same way. When you, you're signing up and they say, yes, I want to do that. I want to be that person. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Because you can never be a better friend than someone who takes and points this person, points your friend to Jesus, just like Andrew did, just like Philip did. Because he's the only one you can count on. Because there are going to be times when I don't know what you need, when you don't know what your friend needs. There are going to be times when you cannot do what your friend needs you to do. There's only one thing that you can count on. The song that we're about to sing. It's the opening line of the song. It says, one I can count on one thing, a God who never fails. You see, you and I will fail one another. But Jesus Christ, when he sets his face towards Jerusalem, when he goes to the cross, when he pulls the ejection, he says, I'm going to have to do this one alone. He's a God who never fails. So, Lord, this morning we come before you. We ask you to work in our lives. Teach us how to be friends who know what no one else knows. Teach us how to be friends, yes, who do what no one else does. But Lord, teach us, challenge us, drive us to bring others to you. To, to allow our lives to be a big arrow that points to you, Lord. Because you are the only one. You are the only one. The only thing we can count on. Lord, you are the author. You are the finisher of our faith. Amen.